I'm Finn J.D. John, FJ at OffbeatOregon.com, and this is the Daily Offbeat Oregon History Podcast. It's Thursday, so this is an archive show, first published as a newspaper column and podcast episode sometime in the last 10 years. Thanks for downloading, and I hope you enjoy our show. This story was first published on September 10th of 2012 under the headline, The Story of Lotus Isle, Oregon's Most Surreal Amusement Park. Here we go. For a small group of Portland-area businessmen in 1929, opportunity was knocking, or so they thought. Jansen Beach, the legendary swim-and-play amusement park on Hayden Island in the Columbia River, had opened in 1928 to vast sellout crowds and was doing very well there. It was backed by some deep pockets, and it was a showplace for the Jansen brand of swimwear. And the businessmen just happened to own a large piece of real estate on the other side of the island, the easternmost tip of it, in fact. Why not announce plans to develop a huge amusement park there, too, and then get the rich backers of Jansen Beach to buy them out? Easy money, right? The businessmen got busy working on Operation Shakedown. They called it Lotus Isle. The trouble was, they had to spend some money to make the Jansen Beach people think they were serious. They did. But then, in mid-1929, Jansen Beach called their bluff. Said jovially that there was plenty of room for all and the competition was welcome. So the would-be bilkers were more or less forced to open their park up after all. And thus was born a theme park that seems today remarkably like a setting for a David Lynch movie. Lotus Isle was, when it opened, Oregon's biggest theme park. It was also hands down the most surreal ever. The roof of the bumper car's ride was shaped like a giant hairless bulldog, complete with fangs protruding from a menacing frown, crouched down as if preparing to pounce on a small child. At its entrance was a hundred-foot-tall neon sign in the shape of the Eiffel Tower in Paris. This massive work of gaudy randomness could be seen from miles away on both sides of the river. The windows of its mammoth dance hall, the Peacock Ballroom, were screened with chicken wire hooked to an electric fence charger. This was apparently an attempt to keep non-paying guests from getting in, but it's not hard to imagine where a good horror film screenwriter might go with that little detail. Even the name seemed like an obscure joke dreamed up by an opium smoker with a master's degree in classics. I mean, really, who would want to go play on the island of the Lotus Eaters? Still, as it turned out, the Jansen Beach people were right. There really was business enough for both parks. When the plan to get bought out by Jansen Beach failed, investor Edwin Platt had stepped forward with enough money to do it right. Platt was, as far as I've been able to learn, not a part of the attempted swindle. There were 40 different attractions and rides and concessions. There was a 5,000-car parking lot. There was space for 15,000 picnickers. When Lotus Isle opened for the first time in June 1930, it was an instant hit, and for two months it looked like a real winner. But everything changed in August, almost exactly two months after the place opened. An 11-year-old boy was riding in the park's roller coaster when he flew out of the car, fell into the Columbia River, and drowned. 
The next day, apparently stricken with grief and guilt, Edwin Platt killed himself. This naturally cast an awful pal over Lotus Isle for the rest of the 1930 season. Over that fall and winter, new management came in and tried to reorganize the place to give it a go in 1931. As part of that plan, Al Painter, a colorful promoter with a checkered past and sketchy business associations, came to Lotus Isle. Al was rumored to have been running from some creditors when he came to Portland. That may be, he certainly was running from some when he left. One of the first things Painter did was partner up with Portland radio station KEX for a promotion he called the Dance-a-thon, held in the cavernous Peacock Ballroom, capacity 6,600 dancers. This is the one, remember, with the electric chicken wire windows. It was well-received, and for most of the season, all was well, and Lotus Island was thriving again. But late August seemed to hold a special jinx for Lotus Isle. On August 24, 1931, the Peacock Ballroom caught fire and burned to the ground in one of the more spectacular structure fires of Portland history. Folks in Vancouver at the time could feel the heat of the blaze from 700 feet away on the other side of the river. The word on the street was that the fire was arson and that it was intended to hurt Al Painter. If so, it did the job. Al had, three months before, purchased an elephant, the biggest elephant in captivity, a 12-foot-tall, 20,000-pound circus veteran named Tusco. Tusco had acquired a reputation as the bad boy of 10-ton elephants when he reacted poorly to a beating by tossing his tormentor across the room and going on a rampage through downtown Cedro Woolley, Washington. He wrecked several cars and a number of houses and caused a riot in a dance hall before stomping off into the countryside and trashing a logging camp. One account says that Tusco was drunk at the time, and indeed, a 1931 newspaper article describing the joy with which he reacted to a gift of 10 gallons of moonshine, prescribed to help him fight off a cold, suggests that this poor animal was no stranger to the bottle. Well, Painter first tried to give Tusco to the Portland Zoo. But after hearing about the Cedro Woolley incident, the city demurred, and Tusco ended up becoming part of the exhibit at Lotus Isle. Tusco eventually went on a rampage bad enough to require the services of the 186th Infantry, doing substantial damage to what was left of Lotus Isle. He almost certainly frightened away as many people as he attracted to the park. After the fire, Painter brought Tusco down to Salem for the Oregon State Fair and then uh, disappeared leaving the state with the 10-ton elephant to feed. Nothing further was heard from him until December when someone spotted an article in a New Orleans newspaper. Apparently he had launched his dance-a-thon promotion there and then run up large debts and skipped on them. Must have sounded pretty familiar. Eventually, Tusco was moved to a Seattle zoo where he died in 1933 of what appears to have been a deep vein thrombosis, although one source says he was actually given the, quote, black bottle, that is, euthanized with poison. His enormous skeleton was donated to the University of Oregon Museum of Natural and Cultural History, where it is to this day. After Tusco's departure, there wasn't much left of Lotus Isle. It hung on through the 1932 season, but early in 1933, everything was liquidated in a bankruptcy proceeding. Today, all that's left is Lotus Isle City Park on the south side of the island, and a row of rotting pilings leading out across the Columbia River to where the streetcar trestle used to be. Key sources in this story have included works by Carl Kluster, Mark Moore, and Dick Pintrich. 
Well, that's our show for today. Thanks again for listening. This podcast is part of Offbeat Oregon History, a public history resource for the state we love. What you've been listening to is one of more than 550 stories originally created and published as newspaper columns in first-run syndication between 2008 and today. You can read them all at offbeatoregon.com. Offbeat Oregon is a division of Pulplet Productions, pulp-lit.com, a boutique publishing house owned and operated by yours truly, specializing in audiobook and multimedia editions of the work of the classic pre-war pulp writers. This podcast is covered under a Creative Commons license type CC by SA 4.0, which basically means you can do anything with the content you like, so long as you A, give me credit for it, and B, whatever you make is also released under a Creative Commons license. But if you need a waiver to either A or B, hit me up, fj at offbeatoregon.com. I've never said no yet to a request for a waiver of one of those conditions. They're generally there just to prevent me from accidentally authorizing the reuse of something I don't actually control the rights to. A good example might be a photograph used by special permission of the rights holder. Our theme music is by the Atlas String Band and was written by Carmen Ficara. Listen and download more at atlasstringband.com. Questions, critiques, ideas for a future episode? Email me at fj at offbeatoregon.com. Episodes of Offbeat Oregon History are uploaded around 6 a.m. every single weekday, so the next one will be on your device and ready to go before you know it. Until then, go out and fill up the rest of the day with good stuff. Bye now. (laughs) ¶¶